0: The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents Acts to the Root with Bojidar Marinov. Where you get a Christian Reconstructionist perspective on the pressing issues of today.
1: Welcome to episode 69 of Acts to the Root podcast, part of the War Room Productions. I'm Bo Marinov and for the next 30 minutes we will delve into the problem of strategy strategic thinking, long-term orientation, and post-millennial optimism. That's right, these are the things we will be talking about. You may be wondering if this is the right episode for the title or the right title for the episode, but it is. We'll be talking about sodomite marriage, or rather about the history of sodomite marriage, but we will be looking at it from a strategic perspective, one that projects our world a few decades ahead and works to establish what our focus needs to be today in order to prepare for the future and its challenges. In one of his audio tape series of back in the 1980s, Dennis Peacock said that the future belongs to those who have prepared themselves for it. Given that our cultural present in the U.S. doesn't belong to the American church, but rather to her enemies, we can rightly assume that the church in decades past didn't care to prepare herself for the future, or that her leaders and ministers didn't care to prepare her for the future. You know, Billy Graham passed away a few weeks ago, and while reading different articles, and some of them eulogies and some criticisms. I couldn't help but think if I ever cared about the reputation, I leave. The last thing I want to be known for is being America's pastor during the decades of the most precipitous loss of Christian influence in America. All right, I'm not trying to say that Billy Graham was deliberately guilty of destroying Christian influence in the culture, but the truth is whatever he did or believed he was doing, he did not prepare the church for the future which is our present today, and this our present today doesn't belong to the church. And Graham is not solitary responsible. Thousands of pastors in in, in the last 100 years have done nothing to prepare the church for the future. And as a result, when the future arrived, it was captured by the enemies of God. In fact, if anything, thousands of pastors have deliberately focused on short-term issues and ignored the long-term issues of the future. There wasn't even a self-conscious effort to discern what was short-term and what was long-term, what battles deserved most of our time and effort and resources, and what battles should be either left alone or only committed small time and effort. This lack of discernment, and even the refusal to seek discernment, has led to grave consequences today. So, today I will tell you a story, a story from history, and you make your conclusions about the future. A couple of years ago, in the middle of the public debate uh, over the Supreme Court decision on uh, the Obergefell v. Hodges, I heard Vody Balkam say in a lecture or a sermon that for the first time a government acknowledges marriages between people of the same sex. It wasn't just Vody, however. Later I heard and, and read the same claim repeated several times. I assume the claim was made to create a dramatic effect on the hearers, to make them realize that this is a very special moment in history, and this moment justifies the sudden attention the preachers gave it. Now, there's much to be said about why the evangelical leaders of our day have to resort to such dramatic effects in order to shake their people out of their apathy. It's the fault of those same evangelical leaders who have preached apathy for, for decades, but this is an issue for another episode of Acts to the Root. As of now... I only want to focus on the claim that this is a unique moment in history in respect to sodomite marriage. And when we examine that claim, we will see that there are certain covenantal lessons for us in the history related to it. There's only one problem with such a claim. It is false. In history, many cultures and governments approved of and sanctioned sodomite unions. Ancient Egypt, Assyria, uh, many Native American cultures in Greece, the city-state of Thebes even had its elite troops, the sacred uh, band of Thebes, staffed with sodomite couples of male lovers. It's a sacred band. The theory was that since sodomite male love, male lovers will fight much more ferociously to protect their lovers. The Fujian province of China was known for it- for its ancient history of sodomite marriages. The Buddhist temples of Tibet. China and Japan practiced pederasty, old men with young boys, as part of their normal everyday life all the way until World War II. Ironically, it was the Chinese communists of all people who put an end to the practice. Sodomite practices and marriages, in in any kind or form, have always existed in pagan societies. Yes, even in Islam. In fact, Islam changed its policies and laws on sodomy only under the influence of Victorian England. And even as late as the early 20th century, notable British sodomites like John Maynard Keynes would travel to Tunisia to find themselves young boys for sexual pleasures. But there's more to the story. While we can expect that pagan societies constantly being in war against God would not only tolerate but also officially codified sodomy in their laws and customs, what is not known today is that Christian Europe also had widespread sodomy and even sodomite marriages for a while. And yes, church ministers presided over these marriages and officially registered them in their books. And from this lapse in the history of the church, we today can learn a very serious covenantal lesson. Now, the Roman Empire in its last days before Constantine was given over to all kinds of immorality, and in fact, that immorality continued long after Constantine. In the Eastern Empire, uh, uh, the Eastern Empire became officially Christian under Theodosius I, but the Western Empire continued to be a mixture of paganism and Christianity. Ironically, it was the invading Germanic tribes who brought Christianity, or actually its heresy, Arianism, and with it, stricter morals. The old Roman aristocracy remained pagan in its beliefs and ways and kept the immorality of the past, and with it kept its sodomy as part of its life. The western church, thus, started with the habit of overlooking that sin. In the first centuries after the fall of the western empire, there were almost no writings against sodomy. It was practiced for sure, and there were a few laws here and there against it, but in general, the society was tolerant of it. One reason could have been the fact that since sodomy is usually a sin related to wealth and free, unproductive time, it was mostly the nobility and the monks that engaged in it. Being a sin of mostly the powerful of the day, therefore, not many theologians dared challenge the status quo against powerful men. Apparently, therefore, during that period of time, sodomites were rather tolerated, In the 8th century, Pope Gregory III only postulated one-year penance for male sodomy and five months for female sodomy. The 8th century, of course, was still the so-called Dark Ages, not in the sense of uh, the secularists use the word as in the ages of Christendom, but dark in the sense that the previous relatively secure and safe lands of the Roman Empire were still in turmoil after the fall of the Western Roman Empire two centuries earlier. Northern Africa and Spain were in the hands of the powerful Muslim dynasties of the Abbasids and the Umayyads. The Eastern Roman Empire was fighting for its life against both the Caliphate in the East, Constantinople was besieged by the Arabs twice in 40 years, and the newly formed Bulgarian Empire in the North. Charlemagne hadn't become a king of the Franks yet to unite the West, so the Boers of Christendom were assaulted by Saxon, Norse, and Slavic barbarians, themselves pushed west by the tribes of the Eurasian steppes. In this situation, a sexual sin largely limited to a former ruling class that had become obsolete was not considered a priority. In the catalogue of church penances, male sodomy was ranked together with other sexual practices that were not specifically banned by the Bible, within the family of course, but were meant only for pleasure, not procreation. The reign of Charlemagne brought to Western Europe the peace it had lacked for centuries. With peace came relative prosperity, and with prosperity complacency and idleness returned, and with them the sins that usually accompany complacency and idleness, especially among a class of the population which by that time had re- has received a-, a number of privileges by Charlemagne and his heirs, and therefore had the luxury of indulging in those sins, the monks. In 1051... The Benedictine monk, Peter Damian, wrote a long-open letter to the then-reigning pope, Leo IX, a letter that later was published in a book under the name of the Book of Gomorrah. The letter was a scathing attack upon the clergy and the monks at at the time, and it contained a long list of sexual sins and crimes that were rampant in the Church. At the top of the list was sodomy and the related to it pederasty, Uh, that is sexual abuse of underage boys. The goal of sodomy, that uh, today is called homosexualism, has always been pederasty, uh, the abuse of underage boys. Sodomy was rampant in the monasteries and among the the clergy, said Damien, and he also spoke against the multiple practices of sexual abuse of boys given to the monasteries for education or as orphans for care. The practice used to be accepted as normative in pagan Athens, Plato mentions it in his dialogues, and it was banned by the early Christian emperors, but in the 11th century, the monasteries and the church schools had become a den of Sodomitic iniquity, and children were the main victims of it. Against these did Peter Damien write and requested that the Pope introduce new and harsher penalties, as well as demand the civil rulers legislate harsher civil penalties. His letter earned him the hatred of many churchmen at the time, Remember, sodomy is usually a sin of luxury and idleness, thus it is mainly the social elites that indulge in it. Damien's attack on sodomy stirred the hornet's nest, and he quickly earned a lot of enemies. Pope Leo IX first praised the book highly, but then, after pressure from the powerful of the day changed his mind, and decided that Damien's criticism was an exaggeration. The very fact that there was such a pushback, however, was sufficient proof that Damien was not exaggerating. Sodomy was really rampant in the church. Of this period, we have the first recorded sodomite marriage officially done by a church priest. In 1061, two men, Pedro Diaz and Munio Vandilas, were officially married by a priest in a small chapel in Galicia in Spain. Modern Roman Catholic commentators claim that the priest probably didn't realize that he was marrying two men, but the names are very specifically male. Spanish names, unlike many modern English names, are very gender-specific. There's no way that the priest didn't know what he was doing. If the Renaissance was a period of great strides in fine arts, the pre-Renaissance centuries were a period of great development in poetry. One can remember that the Renaissance itself started with the poetry of two men, Dante Alighieri and Petrarch. Almost anyone literate enough to write was writing poems for different uh, occasions and whole epic stories were told in verse. Uh, Think of the Norse sagas and Eddas, Beowulf, the whole chivalry epos, and so on. Those not literate enough to write poems just memorized them and a favorite pastime at social gatherings was reciting poems, a leftover from earlier times when tribal lore was transmitted to generations by reciting it at public gatherings. Of course, In a time when only the elite could have the luxury to learn to read and write, it was mainly the elite, the nobility, and the clergy who wrote poems. And guess what? Since sodomy is mainly a sin of idleness of those in the elite who had enough time on their hands and were bored of just standard everyday life, the centuries before the Renaissance saw an abundant flow of sodomite poetry. And mark this, it was written mainly by priests and monks. A number of bishops between the 9th and the 11th century left poems that were obviously sodomite. Poetry, of course, always allows for an abundant use of similes, metaphors, and other figures of speech, and in poetry, the author has the liberty of hiding in plain sight his real motives and purposes. But even allowing for the most favorable interpretations, many of these poems were unmistakably sodomite and expressed sodomite lust. In one example, in the 9th century, a priest, a priest from Verona in Italy wrote a poem about, about a boy who was stolen away by his rival with words that were obviously an imitation of love poems written to women at the time. Now, quote, One of these stones is that boy who disdainfully scorns the in- entreaties I utter ah, painfully. Joy that was mine is my rival's tomorrow, while for my fawn like a stricken dear sorrow. In the late 11th and early 12th century, Baldric. First an abbot of the monastic commune at Bourgueil for 27 years and then Bishop of Dole in Brittany for another 23 years was known for writing love poems. Later in life he admitted again in a poem that among the addressees of his poems he had males as well as females. Quote, I wrote to maids and wrote to lads no less. Some things I wrote is true which treat of love and songs of mine have pleased both his and she's. The number of such poems during that period is surprisingly large and maybe not so surprisingly given that during that period the church penalties on sodomy were relatively light. The civil government's penalties on sodomy were much harsher but only on the books. Most of the sodomites were members of the government elite anyway so they could get a pass. And judging from the extant poetry, sodomy was widespread uh, among the clergy and the clergy under the legal structure of the day was exempt from civil sanctions except where there was violation of the royal law. And the clergy was surprisingly bold in their depictions of sodomy. The two poems I quoted above were of the mildest and most restrained sort. Many other were unashamed expressions of burning lust containing depictions of physical, verbal pictures of sexual touching. Yes, that was among churchmen in the 9th through the 12th century. Peter Damien was right after all, and his letter to Pope Leo IX was not an exaggeration after all. A generation after Damien's letter, the First Crusade was called, and the era of the Crusade started to last for about two centuries, perhaps even three and a half, if one counts the lesser campaigns against the Turks, which continued until the fall of Constantinople in the mid-15th century. Until that time, Christendom had not seen warfare over such long distances. Now, within the small confines of Europe, wars were fought over short distances and the army's trains usually included either the families of the knights, if they were wealthy enough to afford it, or prostitutes who take, took care of and advantage of the sexual needs of the soldiers. Now, from this perspective, the Crusades were a different game. First, the distance was too far from home for either families or prostitutes to be willing to join the journey. Besides, the logistics of caring for or Carrying additional numbers of people over such long uh, distances were complex for that day and age. And second, the very nature of the Crusades as holy wars precluded allowing prostitutes with the armies or even families. Even sex within the family was considered impure when a knight was on a holy mission. The military, uh, especially where there was no strict moral code uh, enforced, has always produced temptations for sodomite acts and the crusaders armies were not an exception the tradition of homosexual poetry continued during that period and in fact the crusades only gave it a new impetus uh, if anything the crusades would be expected to tacitly protect sodomy the crusaders were all knights members of the nobility and it's among the nobility that sodomy was spread in the previous centuries in addition the crusaders all as participants in even brought to trial This is not to say that all crusaders were sodomites, but certainly, sodomites were able to find a safe haven in the crusades, and especially in the religious orders of monks warriors that were formed during that time. Remember, it was monks and bishops who wrote sodomite poetry during that period. They also fought and established their kingdoms in lands previously held by Muslims. There was cultural exchange between the crusaders and their enemies, and guess what? Contrary to what many people imagine today, Islam is actually quite friendly towards sodomy, and sodomy among soldiers was rampant in the Muslim armies at the time. It is commonly accepted today that the accusations of sodomy against the Knights Templar in the 14th century were all fabricated. The truth is, however, there was and still is abundant evidence that at least some of these accusations were true, although admittedly the main target of their accusers was not the Knights' morality but the wealth of their order. It was during that era when sodomite art started growing in Europe. Most of that art appeared disguised under the religious themes, and it was mostly as illustrations to books or even biblical texts. Some of it is quite disturbing. In one illustration, the three wise kings of Matthew chapter 2 were depicted lying in the same bed under the same blanket naked, and two of them are in a position of unmistakably sexual nature. In another such illustration, And that's an illustration to a gospel. In another such illustration, the Garden of Eden is depicted with two couples who passionately hug and kiss each other, except that each couple is of the same sex, two men and then two women, etc., etc. No need to continue with these descriptions, as much as we love to point to the Crusades as a time of great courage and victories for the Christian faith. The reality is the Crusades were at best a mixed blessing, and they brought back to Europe just as much corruption and apostasy as the faith and courage they took away from it. And while in some respects the faith and the knowledge of some grew and were strengthened, sin, and especially sexual immorality, grew even more in Europe before the Renaissance. We like to imagine that Christendom was all good and pure before the Renaissance, and it was the Renaissance that made it all bad and restored paganism. The historical truth is, however, a bit bit different. European Christendom was already given over to immorality even before the Renaissance. In fact, there are legitimate reasons to say that the Renaissance was a step upward in terms of moral improvement, but that for another episode. Let's stick to the sodomy issue.
0: Are you interested in Christian education? Would you like to learn how to be a Christian teacher or how to run your very own Christian school with success? The GCS Apprenticeship Program can help. Learn more on our website at gcsapprenticeship.com.
1: The era when it all came to fruition was the 14th century. Before we examine sodomy during that century, we need to look at the historical circumstances. The 14th century was rightly called by many modern historians the calamitous century. The first 15 years of the century saw a rapid drop of temperatures across the globe, due probably to volcanic activity. In Central Asia, winters became so bitter cold that the Mongol Empire, created by Genghis Khan, collapsed. In Europe, the summers quit being dependable for food production, which culminated in the three years without summers, 1315 through 1317, with bitter cold winters and constantly rainy summers. The famine of these three years decimated the population of Europe, which hadn't known a shortage of food for several centuries. Just 20 years later, with their populations barely recovered from the famine and in the conditions of much colder and more hostile climate, the dynasties of Plantagenets of England and the Valois of France started a war which would last for another 116 years, the Hundred Years' War, leading to even worse loss of productivity and life. Ten years after the start of the war, in in 1347, the bubonic plague hit Europe through Venice, Europe had seen epidemics before, but nothing that destructive. Within just a couple of years, between one-third and one-half of the population of Europe was exterminated. In some places, local feudal lords were left without serfs. They all died. Christendom received such a devastating blow that had it been attacked by even a small force, it would have been conquered. And in fact, such small force did appear. In 1362, a small army under the leadership of Lala Shahin Pasha, subject of Murad I, the grandson of Osman I, the founder of a small Turkish principality in Asia Minor, crossed the Dardanelles from Asia deep into Byzantine territory and captured the highly strategic but weakly defended city of Adrianopolis. Few people, even on the Balkans, where the local nominally Christian states, Bulgaria, Serbia, Wallachia, Hungary, and a number of smaller principalities were busy fighting each other, paid attention to this bold move. But within the next 30 years... Murad I and his son Bayezid I conquered the whole Balkan Peninsula and established positions to both conquer Constantinople and create a springboard for invasion into the very heart of Europe. The European powers realized the threat and assembled a significant army of the cream of their nobility for yet another crusade. That army between 16 and 20,000 knights was defeated so badly at the Battle of Nicopolis in 1396 that only 300 escaped. The reason for the defeat being that European knights were so undisciplined and so obsessed with personal glory that could, could, uh, they couldn't even come together with a common tactical plan for battle, but most just rushed to the enemy and went slaughtered. Economically, politically, uh, militarily, even socially, Europe was as good as gone by the end of the 14th century. Now, one would expect that in the midst of all these calamities, the Christian culture would develop at least a you know, the suspicion that all these may be uh, God's judgment on it for sins that shouldn't even be present in it, let alone be rampant, let alone be almost the norm among the l- ruling classes. That's the purpose of God's judgment, after all, to inspire a return to the faith uh, uh, and a return to the biblical standards for justice and righteousness. But if anything, the 14th century saw only more apostasy. In the midst of constant wars, epidemics, and famine, the valley of human life cheapened and death became prevalent. The hearts of men, instead of turning to God, hardened. And it was not only among the elite. Sexual immorality became rampant even among the lower classes of the society. Before the 14th century, especially after the return of so many fighting men, From the Crusades, it was common for the lower aristocracy not having a means to make a living and not willing to work for a living to form gangs and terrorize whole areas, either as marauders or as mercenaries for local rulers. The height of such activity was the 14th century. Uh, If you have read Arthur Conan Doyle's poem, The Song of the Bow, You know, I don't know if you know it, but what of the bow? The bow was made in England of true wood, a yew wood, Uh, the wood of English bows. So men who are free love the old yew tree and the land where the yew tree grows, and so on. Uh, And that poem was inspired by one such English gang in Italy, led by the English mercenary John Hawkwood. And there were hundreds like Hawkwood terrorizing Europe. But in the middle of the 14th century, Right after the worst devastation of both the Black Death and the greatest battles in the Hundred Years' War, local peasant communities also started organizing such gangs and raiding nearby cities. Europe became a nightmare of violence and injustice. Some of those gangs eventually grew strong enough to stage peasant revolts. In France, Germany, Flanders, England, the dissolution of civil power removed the external restraints, and without restraints, the European society was in a constant collapse. The reason for it, of course, was the church. In the previous several centuries, the church had adopted for its social doctrine feudalism, the concept that the only bonds that provide cohesion in the society were the bonds of power and submission to higher powers, not self-government under God, as, is, as in the law of God. When the calamities of the century weakened the bonds of power and submission, man had no other principle of cohesion to fall back on, and chaos ensued. A parallel can be made to the modern American Evangelical Church, which has elevated submission to powers to the level of a fundamental tenet of the faith at the expense of self-government. We should expect that if and when another calamity weakens the civil powers, like the inability of the government to pay its debt, that will lead to similar problems. But that's an issue for a different episode. Together with all the other dissolution of morals, the dissolution of sexual morals reached its culmination in the 14th century. Premarital sex was officially disapproved by the church, but in real life, its stigma was removed. Young men at the time freely looked for available women to satisfy their lust. Giovanni Boccaccio's The Decameron was published just a couple of years after the Black Death. And Geoffrey Chaucer's The Canterbury Tales was written in the last decade of that century after another epidemic of smaller proportions. Boccaccio's and Chaucer's treatment of extramarital sex as a solution to psychological or health problems was not unique. It was the common wisdom of that age. Their description of sex as a tool of power of women over men, and sometimes vice versa, was also in line with the spirit of that age. The Romance of the Rose, a poem of 22,000 lines written by Guillaume de Loris and Jean de Meun, Uh, a Frenchman, became a true bestseller among the aristocracy. The poem was a detailed description of the art of sensual and sexual seduction and became like a liturgy of pornography to the courtier classes. Falling in love with a married woman and having fantasies about her was considered the highest expression of pure love for a knight. Female clothing, both in court and on the street, became deliberately suggestive and revealing, exposing more and more flesh, which in earlier centuries was considered out of bounds. In the cities and in the countryside, the common folk organized parades and festivals similar to the ancient Saturnalia, where men and women paraded and danced naked in public, naked, and indulged in public sexual acts. Just like in ancient Rome and Greece, the children were not spared. If anything, girls and boys as young as 12 were considered sexually active and were involved in such debauchery. In this setting, Sodomy reached its culmination and flourished like never before. By that time, some of the theologians of the Western Church had developed the theory that sodomy was mainly sin against natural law, and that is because it didn't lead to procreation. Now, Thomas Aquinas was responsible for taking that theory to its logical end. And while Aquinas also said that sodomy was second in gravity only to murder, the result of that theory was to diminish the gravity of sodomy as sin. It was no graver sin than adultery or fornication, or even than sexual relations within the family between a man and his wife, simply for pleasure, not for procreation. Yes, that was considered sin at the time. But in a society where all such acts were widespread because of the common dissolution of morals, sodomy was not considered anything too offensive. There were, of course, civil penalties against sodomy. But again, since sodomy was mainly a sin of the members of the feudal elite or of the military and monastic castes, those penalties were seldom applied. The church was rather silent. Or as a matter of fact, as we will see, it even joined the other side for a while. In many of the cities of Italy, there were special sections of town where male prostitutes lived. In monasteries, sodomy had always existed even before the 14th century, but in the 14th century it was now even openly celebrated in art. Some monasteries' wall paintings of the time exhibit men hugging each other in poses uh, that can't be anything else but sexual, and the practice of monks raping boys sent to them for education seemed to have continued throughout the century. And in Italy, church priests started performing sodomite marriages. A number of such marriages were recorded in several cities in North Italy. There may have been even more, of which we don't know, due to lost records. Again, such marriages were mainly limited to the political elite, to, who, uh, to those who had immunity to the otherwise strict judicial laws against sodomy. At what we know, most such marriages were performed in small chapels, usually not in big ceremonies. By the end of the 14th century, some feudal courts had official same-sex couples. And while there were voices within the institutional church against perversion and debauchery, the majority went with it. In his Inferno, Dante Alighieri, uh, he wrote it in that century, mentions specific names of well-known sodomites in high government positions. One of them, for example, Guido Guerra, a man of influence and power, a military leader, and a confidant of Pope Innocent IV. Sodomy apparently was not even concealed if the sodomites were so well known, and even the popes had no problem befriending and confiding in sodomites. In terms of morality, therefore, the 14th century was the lowest point in the history of Christendom. No matter what area of life one would want to look at, family, sexuality, war, economic, social relations, foreign policy, art and literature, every area of life was soaked in wickedness and injustice. Rampant sodomy was only a natural consequence of the rampant total wickedness in the, in the culture. What made it even worse than other cultures, however, was that the church said and did next to nothing against it. In most instances of immorality, church ministers joined the powerful of the day, or were themselves the powerful of the day, and indulged in that immorality themselves. And then, it suddenly ended, within a little over one generation. Reading that part of history, I have always wondered about that abrupt change. The 14th century was indeed a dark age, not in the sense modern secularists propose it. In fact, if anything, they would have loved living in that century with its dissolution of morals, its secularist character, and especially with the licentious liberty of its artists and poets, supported even by church ministers in high positions. The free fall of the society continued well into the mid-15th century, and with it continued the judgment from God. There were no new moral or judicial reforms. There were no leaders who would dare lead the society to correction. The only person who tried to reform something in the church or in the society based on the law of God was the Czech reformer, John Huss. But after he was executed, his followers either went into heretical extremes, including lawlessness and sexual immorality, or returned under the Roman church for the lack of any vision of how the reforms should continue. The last crusade against the Turks, started by the Polish-Lithuanian King Vladislav in 1443, ended in bitter defeat near Varna. Today in Bulgaria, actually, I used to live right on the field, right where the battle was fought in 1444. And that for the same reasons as the defeated Nicopolis 50 50 years earlier. His knights had no self-discipline, no self-control, and were driven by ambition for personal glory and honor rather than common military sense. Constantinople fell to the Turks in in 1453. In the same year, England and France finally ended the Hundred Years' War, not because they resolved their problems, but because both kingdoms ran out of resources, including human resources. The Black Death returned several times after the Great Outbreak in 1347 in some regions. Even the universities started in the previous centuries were now closing for the lack of qualified professors. The plague had taken the lives of many of them. For all practical purposes, in 1453, Europe laid in ruins, politically, socially, economically, militarily, intellectually, and in the midst of all this, sexual immorality, including sodomy, reigned supreme everywhere, from the highest courts to the lowest villages of the land. And then, all, all suddenly changed. I have no idea where the change came from. There is no specific event or historical factor that can be declared the beginning of the change towards correction. After the 1450s, within a generation, Christendom suddenly developed the discipline, the desire for righteousness, the vision, and the impetus to break with the previous generations. In Portugal, Prince Henry the Navigator started laying the foundation for the age of exploration by developing a new kind of ship, the caravel, and training a generation of navigators like Antonio Noli, uh, Nuno Tristan, Tristão, Bartolomeu Dias, Vasco da Gama, and many others, who became role models for many European youths at the time, including the Genoese Christopher Columbus. Both Spain and Portugal were able to train armies disciplined enough to defeat the Moors and rejoin the peninsula to Christendom. Columbus left for his first journey in the same year the last Muslim fortress in Spain, uh, Granada, fell to the armies of Ferdinand and Isabella. These new victories were the result of the development of better gunpowder and weapons, which took more disciplined armies than the knights of the previous era. In 1444, when Vladislav was defeated at Varna, the technological levels of Islam and Christendom were the same. Just 50 years later, Christendom had superior ships and shipbuilding and superior firepower on both sea and land. In 1439, Gutenberg developed the movable type, and within just 20 years, Europe produced more copies of different books than all of the previous centuries together. The universities were revived. A number of reformers appeared even before Luther, the greatest names among whom were uh, Girolamo Savonarola in Italy and Desiderius Erasmus in uh, Northern Europe. Europe, which had sunk to the bottom of the pit of iniquity, rose quickly to levels of individual and social morality that she never had before. Luther's Reformation was not produced in a vacuum. It could only succeed because the righteousness of the society was pulling far ahead, while the morality of the institution of the church was lagging behind. What about sodomy? By the end of the 15th century, sodomy had almost disappeared from public life. As opposed to the abundant evidence of widespread sodomy in the previous century, the second half of the 15th century and the 16th century gave very little evidence of it. Erasmus, who in his satire in praise of folly wrote against the clergy of his time, only mentions it in passing. Compare this to the literature of the previous ages. Luther, when asked about his view on sodomy, declared that he would prefer to leave the subject untouched. His fellow Germans were so blissfully unlearned about this horrible vice that he didn't want to give them a chance to get educated in perversion, even if through a sermon. Calvin, in the gigantic volumes of his sermons and commentaries, never tackles directly the issue of sodomy. Apparently, neither France nor Switzerland in his time had any widespread sodomy. John Knox also didn't elaborate on that sin in his letters or sermons. He must have not considered it an issue in Scotland or England compared to Europe of of just a generation or two before, in the 1300s and the early 1400s, by the 1500s, sodomy seemed to have disappeared in Europe. Only a few cases are known of that time, and certainly none of them brazenly public display of perversion by the elites. What happened? To what can we ascribe such abrupt change? Certainly not to any church revival. There wasn't any in that period. There was no major drive towards reformation by any established church figure. The change in the society happened independently of the church. The seeds grew without any institutional help. Now, how how did that transformation happen? And what made sodomy disappear so abruptly within just a generation? The answer can be found when we consider the nature of the sodomite culture and the nature of the godly, family-based culture. A sodomite culture is, by default, and by its very definition, devoid of the ability to produce fruit. As long as that culture hasn't developed to its practical maturity, it still has mixed practices. Many of the early sodomites in Rome and later in medieval Europe had families and wives and children while practicing their sodomy. The perversion, therefore, continued by example and imitation in the families and in the culture. But such mixture is not a matured sodomite culture. When a sodomite culture develops to its maturity, it completely rejects the concept of procreation and view of the future. That's why modern sodomites are the main supporters of the abortion industry. To put it simply, a sodomite culture that has come to fruition has come to fruitlessness. It can't develop anymore. It can't procreate. It can't produce offspring for the future. It can't even think of the future. All it can do is destroy itself. Now, it may bring some destruction on the culture around itself, but even there, a sodomite culture gets so powerless the closer it gets to its fruition that even its attempts at destruction are powerless. And eventually, it disintegrates of itself, even where there is no organized resistance against it, and it gets replaced with a culture of future-oriented families whose purpose is conquering the world, even if that culture starts very small and very weak, and even if it looks like it won't have any chance to survive against the odds. And you all make the conclusions for yourself in our culture today. The book I will assign for reading this week is A Distant Mirror by Barbara Tuckman. Tuckman is an outstanding historian and even more outstanding storyteller. Read the story of the 14th century in that book. As you realize the moral and social chaos Europe was thrown in by the end of the 14th century, just keep in mind that just two generations after the end of the book, Europe was completely different, and let that govern your hope and strategies for the future. And speaking of strategies of the future, remember in your prayer and giving Bulgarian Reformation Ministries, a mission organization devoted to building the intellectual foundation for the future Christian civilization in Eastern Europe. That's right. No matter how the situation looks today, eventually, only the Christian civilization survives long term. And we're there for the long term. Visit BulgarianReformation.com. Subscribe to the newsletter. Read what a mission is supposed to do to win long term. Pray and donate. And God bless you all.
0: This was a Reconstructionist Radio War Room production. Axe to the Root with Bojadar Marinov. Please visit BojadarMarinov.com and ReconstructionistRadio.com forward slash Axe to the Root.